All right, so we are in, uh, uh, I don't know which week, I think maybe the sixth week of this uh, study in 1 Samuel. It's called Kings and Prophets, and kings and prophets in the Old Testament were leaders, and that's what we're talking about with this series is leadership. And our tendency is to think about kings as civic leaders, right, and prophets as spiritual leaders. But in 1 Samuel, it's just not that Simple. You can't just talk about civic leaders and spiritual leaders. The leadership that kings provided demanded a deep spirituality, total dependency upon God. And when the kings were not dependent upon God, when their spiritual life went downhill, the anointing of God that was on them to lead in the, in the, in the country was taken away. And the leadership that prophets provide has huge implications in civic life because they're called by God to speak truth to power. And so there is this this very kind of gray nuance there that if you're a king, that there are spiritual dimensions to your leadership. If you are a prophet, there are civic dimensions to your leadership. The reality is that all of us are leaders. It's one of the reasons that we decided to do this series because we are all leaders of, of some sort. We are either leaders of companies or leaders of departments within companies or leaders of teams within departments within companies or leaders of classrooms or leaders of small groups or leaders in our family or leaders of a responsibility that's been entrusted to our care that we are the ones that are stewarding that responsibility and we are a leader as it relates to doing that task or leaders of our own lives. All of us, all of us, all of us are leaders. And that's why 1 Samuel is so relevant to all of us because it reminds us of the responsibilities and the characteristics of good leadership, but it also reminds us of the pitfalls of leadership as well. Now, today we're looking at one of the most dangerous, destructive pitfalls when it comes to leadership. One of the most dangerous, destructive pitfalls just as it pertains to just being a human being. And and that is jealousy or envy. And all of us deal with this at some level. I've dealt with this in my life. I'm sure that you have dealt with this at some level in your life. All of us deal with jealousy. All of us deal with envy. All of us deal with that whole thing of kind of comparing ourselves to others. And here's what's really interesting about envy. Rarely, rarely, even though we all struggle with, with it, even though we all deal with it, rarely does someone say, I have a problem with envy. Like we may admit, I've had folks that have come and at times they've said, you know, Rod, I have a problem with anger. Can you talk to me about that? Or I have a problem with being impatient. I'm just so impatient. Can we talk about that? Or even I have a problem with lust and uh, dealing with uh, addiction to pornography or whatever. Can we talk about that, but I've never had anyone who has said, like, Rod, I'm really, really struggling with envy. In fact, no one has ever asked me to preach a sermon on envy. No one has ever asked me to preach a series on envy. No one has ever said, could you focus on envy for a couple? Now, I get all kinds of suggestions for, like, topics that people would like me to preach on, things that they like me to preach on, things that they say, you know, people struggle with this. This would be really helpful for folks to deal with. And even though we all struggle with this issue, like no one has ever said, hey, let's do a series on envy. Like that would be a really, really great thing to do. And I think the reason that is, is because 
It's hard sometimes to see how self-destructive envy can be. In fact, in a performance-driven, consumeristic culture like we live in, envy, when you think about it, is almost encouraged. Like envy is the way you sell things. Envy is, uh, if you envy what your neighbor has, then it causes you to spend more money to have what your neighbor has, which in turn drives the economy. So in a very, very real sense, consumerism is driven by envy. Envy becomes so innocuous that we don't even notice the damage that it's doing to our soul until it's too late. But the ancients understood the destructiveness of envy. And that's why they considered envy one of the seven deadly sins. You've heard about the seven deadly sins. Like this was considered one of the seven deadly sins because envy chips away at our identity, ends up making the world an incredibly miserable, miserable place. And in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, we get a real life illustration of what jealousy looks like, of what envy looks like. The context is that David has just defeated Goliath. That was chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Now we're at chapter 18. So that has just taken place. And David is starting to get some recognition as an emerging leader, as a courageous warrior. And David's growing popularity is causing Saul to feel insecure about his own leadership and his own position. And this is how it then plays out, starting in verse 6 of uh, chapter 18. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs, with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang. By the way, I said in the first service, I'm not even sure what a lute is, but I'm sure someone will inform me. 37 people informed me what a lute is, so I now know. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain in the song galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye. He kept an eye on David, a jealous eye on David. And the next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house when David was playing the harp, as he usually did, and Saul had a spear in his hand. And he hurled the spear at David, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. Like, that's a nice way of saying, I'll pin him to, to the wall because the spear, that's not like, I hope it goes through his loose clothing and pins him to the wall. That's like, I'll pin him to the wall because the spear goes through him. I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. The commanders need him as a running back for their team. David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. And, you know, we didn't deal with the whole disobedience of Saul, but Saul begins to do what's right in his own eyes, and he, he's disobedient to the Lord, and he doesn't follow what the Lord tells him to do. And when that happens, um, God's anointing is taken up, uh, away from Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him 
uh, command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. And in everything he did, he had success, talking about David, because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him, but all of Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. So what are the things, right? Let's just kind of unpack this a little bit. What are the things that lead to envy or that contribute to jealousy or contribute to envy? Well, it all starts out with comparing. That's where it always starts. It always starts with comparisons. It always starts with comparing. Saul says they've credited David with being victorious in battle over tens of thousands, but they have only, only credited me with being victorious over thousands. He's comparing what they're saying about David to what they're saying about himself. Now, here's what's interesting about what they're saying about Saul. What they're saying about Saul is pretty stinking good, right? Like what they're saying about Saul is that he's been victorious over thousands. Like who would not like that being said about them? That they have been successful in a thousand different ways. That they have been victorious in a thousand different ways. Like that's an incredibly positive thing to say about Saul. But they are saying that David has been victorious over tens of thousands. And as soon as Saul hears that, he immediately begins to compare himself to David. And that's where envy always starts. That's where jealousy always starts. It always starts with comparing. Comparing what we have with what someone else has. Comparing how we look with how someone else looks. Comparing our experiences with other people's experiences that they um, posted on Instagram. And then we compare our real life to the fake life that we see on Instagram. And, and we compare our experiences to their experiences, comparing our lives to other people's lives. Envy doesn't allow us to look at what someone else has, has and then just celebrate it for what it is. We immediately compare what the other person has with what we have or what we don't have. That's how Saul's jealousy and how his self-destructive journey began rather than celebrating the victories of this young, emerging leader that eventually is going to rise to leadership in the nation, rather than celebrating the victories of David, he begins to compare himself to David, and it makes him feel bad about his own leadership, it makes him feel bad about his own role, it makes him feel bad about his own gifts, his own talents, his own abilities. And then comparison, it doesn't just stop there, right? Comparison leads to something else. Like envy always starts with comparison, like it always starts with us comparing ourselves to something else or someone else, but then it goes from there and comparison then leads to desire. We don't just compare what we have to what someone else has, we want what someone else has. We desire what someone else has. We wish that we had their looks or their connections or their money or their success or their big house or whatever it is, all of which makes it almost impossible to enjoy what we have, what God has entrusted to our care. And that's what envy does. It robs you of your joy. It steals your joy. That's why it's so self-destructive, because it robs you of your joy. It makes you less happy about what God has entrusted to your care. Like you used to love your apartment 
until you saw your friend's apartment and now you are not nearly as happy. Your happiness is gone. Your happiness has been stolen. You used to love your house until you see your friend's house and then your happiness evaporates. Your happiness is gone. Envy also robs you of joy relationally. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says that we are to weep with those who weep and we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. But envy reverses all that. Envy weeps when others are rejoicing and rejoices when others are weeping. All of which ultimately leads to resentment. So we don't just compare what we have to what someone else has. That's one thing, just to compare. We don't just desire what they have. We resent the fact that they have it. We resent them. For have, we resent them because we feel like maybe they don't deserve it or we feel like we deserve it maybe a little bit more than they deserve it because we've lived a better life than they've lived or we've made better choices than they have made. Like we look at our life, we say, look, I've made so many good choices and they've made so many crummy choices and they have this and they've got that and it just doesn't seem fair and it just doesn't seem right and we're resentful because maybe we feel like we lived a better life, maybe we feel like we've sacrificed more, we've given more away, whatever. Maybe it feels like we're a better Christian in some way. Whatever it is, like we begin to resent the person. Now, envy doesn't just stay at the same level. Like it would be one thing if we just like experienced envy and then it just kind of stayed at the same level. But envy almost always grows. It becomes more and more pronounced in our lives. Look again at verses 10 and 11. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand. He hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Out of envy, the feelings of envy that he has towards David turn to violent action. Saul tries to kill David. The Hebrew word that's translated there, evil spirit, um, probably doesn't really mean evil or wicked in kind of the spiritual sense as much as it means like terrifying. And it says that, that this terrifying spirit came from God. This terrifying spirit came from God upon Saul. It's a reminder of something. It's a reminder that one of the terrifying things about God's judgment and I know that we talk a lot around here about the love of God and the persistence of God and the pursuit of God. But scripture is also really, really clear that God is a God of justice and God is a God of judgment. And one of the really terrifying things about God's judgment is that he allows us the freedom to journey further and further down an unhealthy path. So addiction usually leads to more addiction and bitterness usually leads to more bitterness and envy usually leads to more envy. It's a reminder that if we've chosen a path that does not reflect God's best, that God will let us go down that path. If we've chosen a path that does not reflect God's best, that God will allow us, part of his judgment is that he will allow us to go down the path that we have chosen. Now, that doesn't mean that he won't pursue us down that path. 
He will. He does. The reason that we're here, the reason that we are connected online, the reason that we have the stories that we have of restoration and forgiveness and redemption and grace and all of that is because God pursues us down paths that are not the paths that he wanted us to go. He pursues us out of love. He never stops pursuing us. He will always pursue us down those paths. But God will not force you When you're on one of those paths that is not the direction that God would want you to go, he will not force you to turn around. You have to make that choice. The Bible has a word for it. It calls it repentance. That repentance is the willingness when we are on a path that does not reflect the path that God has for us, a willingness to turn, a willingness to head in the other direction. And when we do, God is there because he's been pursuing us, pursuing us, pursuing us, pursuing us down that path. But we have to make the choice. So every time you say no to God, every time that you're selfish rather than serving, every time that we pay back someone rather than forgive someone, every time that we worry rather than trust, every time that we're filled with envy rather than being filled with joy, the no response to God just doesn't go away. It just gets stronger. It grows. It becomes a force in our lives. And the harder and harder and harder and harder and harder it is to resist it. And you see that happening in Saul's life. His envy of David doesn't lessened over time it doesn't even stay the same it grows it grows to the point where he's throwing spears he's chucking spears at this young emerging leader so how do we overcome envy if it's something that all of us struggle with at some level if it's something that culture kind of minimizes because of the consumeristic culture in which we're in like how do we overcome Envy. Well, you can't just look at Saul to find the answer, but you can look at his son, Jonathan. Let me go back to the beginning of chapter 18. Look at the way the chapter begins. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. This is Saul's son and his relationship with David. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved David as himself. Jonathan took off his robe. It's interesting, this this very visual commitment from Jonathan to David. Jonathan took off his robe. It would have been the royal robe that he's wearing because he's next in line to inherit the throne. Jonathan took off the robe, the royal robe that he was wearing. He gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. Now again, keep in mind, this is all happening right after David has defeated Goliath and everyone's attention is kind of turned towards David. And at this point, what's interesting, at this point, 
Saul and Jonathan both realize that God's anointing is upon David. And because of that anointing that David has, David is going to be a great leader. David is going to be uh, a great king someday. He's going to do great things. In fact, it's obvious to both of them at that point that one day David is eventually going to be king. Like they both recognize that. But that's where the narrative diverges. Their stories diverge. Jonathan's story and his father's story diverge. Now, if that happens, if David becomes king, Jonathan is definitely the one with more to lose because Jonathan is Saul's heir. He's the one who stands to inherit the throne. He's the one who should be the next king of Israel. Saul is already king. He doesn't have to worry about losing his throne. He's safe. Jonathan is not safe. The prequel to uh, Game of Thrones has come out. And it's called uh, House of the Dragon. Now, I can neither confirm nor deny that I have watched Game of Thrones (laughs) or that I am now watching House of the Dragon. But if I were it would be obvious that the underlying assumption that runs through the entire show is that if you have a claim to the throne, but in the end, do not ascend to the throne, it will cost you your life. Even if you're part of the same family, doesn't matter. It will cost you your life because the new king or the new queen will see that person who had a right to ascend to the throne, they will see that person as a threat, and the only way to remove the threat is to kill the threat. If you know anything about royal dynasties, you know that that's exactly what has played out over centuries and centuries and centuries of history. So based on that, Jonathan should be incredibly fearful of David, because if David becomes king, Jonathan is the greatest threat to the throne. He's the greatest threat to his power because he has a a right. He's the heir. He has a right to claim the throne. And killing Jonathan would be the culturally expected thing to do, the expedient thing to do. But Jonathan responds in a completely countercultural way. We're told that when he realizes that God's anointing is on David, he actually takes off his royal Robe, the thing that is the symbol of his future kingship. And he gives it to David. And he gives him his tunic and his armor as well, including his sword. And when Jonathan gave his sword to David, he was in essence saying to David, command me. Not only do I allow you to become the next king, I will serve you as king. It was an incredibly vulnerable thing to do because Jonathan knew that giving up his sword to his competitor for the throne meant that David could kill him in a moment with that very sword. So why did Jonathan do that? Well, because the text says that he loved David and he did not want to stand in the way of what God was doing through his friend. 
God was going to use David to save his people. And that couldn't happen if Jonathan wasn't willing to abdicate his right to the throne. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, he gives this whole thing about what love is and what love isn't. We call it the love chapter. And a lot of times at weddings, this is the part of the chapter that we read. But he talks about what love is. He talks about what love isn't. One of the things that he said that love is not is he says, love does not envy. That true love is putting your happiness, true love is putting your happiness into someone else. It's not just being happy for them. It's, it's repositioning your happiness. It's putting your happiness in someone else. It's saying, I love you so much that I am the most happy when you are flourishing. I love you so much that I am the most happy when I see you living out God's purposes in your life. I'm most happy when I see you flourishing. I'm most happy when I see you thriving. I'm most happy when I see you succeeding. I'm most happy when I see you living out God's purpose and plan for your life. Which means that true love can't be envious. Like you can't love someone truly and be envious. You can't love someone truly and be jealous because it wants to see the people that you love flourish. That's what true love does. It wants to see the people that you care about flourish. True love causes you to weep with those who weep and it causes you to rejoice with those who rejoice. And Jonathan, of course, is pointing to Jesus because Jonathan emptied himself of his glory and made himself vulnerable so that he could, so that someone that he loved could flourish. And that's what Jesus has done for us. He has emptied himself so that those who he loves, us, could flourish. This, this is how Paul describes it in Philippians 2. This, this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture. This is my brother. My brother was kind of the leading theologian for our denomination that, that we are a part of. And I think his love for this passage uh, got buried deep within me, and it just has become one of my favorite passages. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3, it says, Do not do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held onto, something to be clutched, something to be kept, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Can I get an amen 
for God's word. That that is the essence, that is the essence of the gospel. That Jesus abdicated his throne for a season so that we could flourish so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be restored, so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be made whole, so that we could live out God's desire and plan for our life. He abdicated his throne for a season. Jesus' greatest joy, this is the gospel. That Jesus' greatest joy is seeing you and me get what we do not deserve. You know, that's the, the essence of envy, is that we look at someone getting something that it seems like they don't deserve, or maybe that we deserve way more than they deserve it, and there is this kind of jealous, envious response of like, Ah, I hate the fact that they're getting something. They didn't deserve that. They don't deserve that. And that the gospel is Jesus saying that my greatest joy, my greatest happiness is seeing the people that I love, the ones that I love, getting something that they do not deserve. That's the essence of the gospel, folks. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself what he didn't deserve, the consequences of our brokenness, so that we might get what we don't deserve, forgiveness, grace, wholeness, redemption, a second chance, a third chance, a new beginning, a chance to start over, a chance to not be destroyed by our failures, a chance to be used by God again, that he took on himself what he did not deserve so that we could have what we do not deserve. There's freedom. There's freedom in abdicating the throne. There's a freedom in putting the sword in Jesus' hands and saying, command me, command me. That's what Jonathan was saying to David when he put his sword in his hands. He was saying, command me, I will serve you. There is freedom in putting the sword in Jesus' hands and abdicating the throne and saying, command me. I want to serve you. I don't just want you to be king. I want you to be my king. I don't just want you to be Lord. I want you to be my Lord. I am done with being my own king. I am done with being my own Lord. I am done with being my own savior. I abdicate, I abdicate the throne, Jesus, to you. I abdicate all of that to its rightful owner, to the one who should be sitting on the throne, to the anointed one. 
David was anointed and they saw that anointing and it drove Saul crazy and filled him with envy. But Jonathan saw the anointing on David's life and he says, here is the sword. Here is the robe. I abdicate the throne to you. Command me, I will serve you. There's freedom in abdicating the throne to Jesus. There's freedom in saying, Jesus, here's, here's the sword. I'm done being my own king. I'm done being my own savior. You are the anointed one. Command me and I will serve you. God, we confess today that we struggle with this stuff. We just do. We live in a world that minimizes it, that uses it, that exploits it. And sometimes we get so caught up in, in comparing ourselves and desiring what others have and resenting others for what they have that maybe we don't feel like they deserve that it it eats us up it destroys us from the inside it leads just like it led soul to his demise it leads us to our demise we confess that to you lord we want to be like jonathan like we want to say to you take the sword take my robe I abdicate the throne. Lord, I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my king. And Lord, I, I just pray for two groups of people today, whether they're in this room or in another space in our building or whether they're part of our online community or whether they're watching this at some other date down the line, Lord. I pray, I pray, I pray for two groups of people. One, I pray for those who have, who have said yes to Jesus as King and yes to Jesus as Lord, but if they were to be honest right now, they would have to admit that they have kind of slowly crept back in and, and ascended, ascended to the throne. And Lord, we just pray that that we can recognize that, that we are not blind to that. And that we can with renewed passion say, here's the sword. You're the anointed one. <laughs> You're the anointed one. Ascend to your rightful place. And Lord, for those who perhaps have never made you king, those who have live their lives up to this point on the throne of their own life, their own king, their own Lord, their own master, their own savior. Lord, I pray that today could be the day of abdication. That day, today could be the day in which they get off the throne and they allow you to assume your rightful position as king of kings and Lord of lords who one day every single one will bow 
every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are the king. You are the rightful one. You are the anointed one. You are the savior. In the name of Christ, we pray. And everyone said, amen.